This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Family Walls by Maeve Brennan, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 1973. He might as well not have seen Rose at all, but he had seen her, and he wondered if it could possibly have been intentional to shut the door in his face like that. The story was chosen by Claire Louise Bennett, who's published two books of fiction, Pond and Checkout 19. Hi, Claire Louise. Hi, Deborah. So you chose a Maeve Brennan story today, and I I know that you've just written the introduction to a reissue of her story collection, The Springs of Affection, so, so she has likely been on your mind. How did you first come to her stories? I first came to Maeve Bennan's stories quite a few years ago. Um, I live in Ireland. Um, But saying that, it's not as if she is one of the most well-known Irish writers, I don't suppose. But I did come across The Springs of Affection, an earlier edition of Springs of Affection, I think in a second-hand shop when I bought it. So I became a fan kind of immediately. I loved her writing style. I loved her attention to detail that sometimes kind of borders on the obsessive. Um, (laughs) It was interesting to read over those stories again, and I really couldn't understand it this time around, that she is just not more uh, well-known, I suppose. Why do you think that is? I mean, she she was actually quite well-known in in the U.S. because of her New Yorker pieces, I suppose, but, but not so much in Ireland. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether it's because the stories are, on the face of it, very kind of domestic. Um, The springs of affection, all the stories take place in a suburban house in Dublin. But for me, they're not really particularly rooted in realism. You know, I don't think that it's really a social kind of commentary that's going on necessarily here. It seemed to me that there is a kind of a gothic sort of dimension to the stories because her exploration of the domestic really reveals the sort of horror that's close to the surface and the Mm -hmm. unrest and the recriminations and the resentments and so on that really simmer away, you know, in the domestic space, which is always kind of optimized in terms of its provision of comfort and care and all the rest of it. But at the same time, it's a place where we can feel really um, quite sort of dark things or uncertainties. She definitely taps into that without going overboard, you know. It all stays within the realm of the believable. None of the scenarios become too extreme and it's her ability to be able to do that and it's in this particular story she's able to pick up on just a really small thing that happens and it manages to kind of really undo the evening of this particular couple Mr and Mrs Durden. Yeah yeah and in a a gothic story it would just the house would actually crumble but here it's what's crumbling is, is emotional. So why, what made you pick Family Walls of, of the many stories in the book to read? I think because it does exemplify that um, gothic sensibility so well and 
it's it's not an easy story by any means. It it is a, a terrifically sad story, and <laughs> the stories generally are, you know. So, like I said, all those stories um, take place in the in the same house in Ranelagh, and I. As far as I know, they're based on how she grew up in before the family went over to America. Her father was the first Irish mm -hmm. envoy to America. So it seems in a way that she was um, kind of haunted, really, by, by that house. And the details, they occur again and again throughout all of the stories. So they were obviously there in her mind, um, but mm -hmm. not in a nostalgic way. You know, one doesn't feel a kind of a nostalgia. Um, I'm always fascinated by that. And maybe as someone who has left their home country, you know, I'm from England originally, I know very mm -hmm. well that there are certain details of my family home that um, are very, still very strong and very vivid. And so I, I guess I feel some sort of affinity, you know. Uh, we'll talk some more afterward. And now here's Claire Louise Bennett reading Family Walls by Maeve Brennan. Family Walls For the fifth day in a row, there had been no rain, and in Dublin, even in June, that was unusual. Hubert Durden, who worked in a men's outfitting shop on Grafton Street in the centre of the city, had brought his raincoat with him when he left home in the morning, but when closing time came and he saw the golden evening, he thought he might walk all the way home instead of taking that long ride out in the tram. He was a creature of habit. His daily habits were comfortable, but it would do him no harm to miss his tram for once, even if it meant being late for tea. Hubert was always thinking about doing more walking. He knew that for a man in his forties he did not get nearly enough exercise. But there was the raincoat and having to decide whether to carry it or put it on. If he was going to make a start on walking, he did not want to start in his raincoat. And in the back of his mind, he had an objection to wasting all that exercise on hard pavements with nothing ahead of him. He thought of mountain paths and tangled woods and narrow roads that ran between green fields. He imagined himself wearing a heavy pullover and walking steadily, but not in the direction of home. All the time he was thinking about walking, he was hurrying to get his place on his usual tram, and in the end, he turned his own corner and walked past the neighbouring houses to his own front door and turned his key in the lock at the same time as always. Thinking about doing all that walking had given him a sense of energy and well-being. He felt in good health and good humour and contented to be coming home after his day's work, and he was smiling as he stepped into the hall. There were red glass panels in the side frames of the front door, and he was always aware of the glass, and always closed the door carefully. At the same instant that he was hanging his raincoat on the rack, he looked down the hall and saw the kitchen door close quickly and quietly, but not quickly enough to prevent him from seeing that Rose was down there. Her head was turned away from him as she closed the door. The entrance hall where Hubert stood was narrow, it was no more than a passage, and the floor was covered with linoleum. 
At the end of the hall there were stairs going up to the bedrooms and, farther along, the three steps down to the kitchen. The hall was dim, although it was still bright outside. The kitchen had been lit up, the glimpse he had seen of it before the door closed. There had only been a second of time, and hardly more than a line of light that narrowed to a thread and then vanished. He might as well not have seen Rose at all, but he had seen her and he wondered if it could possibly have been intentional to shut the door in his face like that. He considered going down to the kitchen and asking some question, saying something, anything at all, but instead he went along the hall and into the back sitting room and walked over to the window and turned at once from the window and began to stare at the doorway. But of course, it was already too late. By this time, Rose should have opened the kitchen door and called up. Is that you, Hubert? She must have heard him coming down the hall. You could hear everything in this house. He listened, but he could hear no sound at all. That was strange. He should at least have been able to hear some little noise, teacups and saucers or something, the tea being got ready. He might as well have been alone in the house for all the evidence he had of life near him. He felt that he was alone, and he wished there was someone in the room with him who could give him advice, because he wanted to be told to go straight down to the kitchen, or else not to go down there, but to sit down at once and ignore the whole matter. He wished he had someone to talk to. He wanted the impulse he felt to go down to the kitchen to be made impossible by a command that he was bound to obey. But no word came to forbid him, and so... Although he knew it was impossible for him to go down and speak to Rose, he knew also that it was not forbidden, and he did not know what to do. What he could not do was to sit down. He was too angry to sit down. But he was trembling, and he sat down in his chair, which had its back to the window and was beside the fireplace, where it stayed, summer and winter, close to the hearth, with Rose's low chair across the hearthrug from him. The hearthrug was a dull, warm red, and it was fringed at the ends. Hubert wished he hadn't seen the door close. If he had taken that walk home, he would have been very late, and he wouldn't have seen the door close. But when had he ever walked home from work? Never. Rose had closed the door at the exact moment when she had every right to expect him home, and something in her attitude as she closed the door told him that she had seen him letting himself into the house. The more he thought back, the more he was sure he was right. In the glimpse he had had of her, there had been something hasty, he would even say furtive, unless he was imagining things. But he knew he wasn't imagining anything. She was down there now, wondering if he had seen the kitchen door close, and she was frightened, and he wondered what she was thinking about him. She had no right to behave like this. It was intolerable. The whole thing was intolerable. Then he heard the kitchen door open, and footsteps on the stairs. When Rose appeared in the doorway, Hubert felt such dislike that he smiled. He saw the confusion caused by the smile, and he saw her hand fastened on the doorknob as her hand always fastened on something, the back of a chair or her other hand, before she spoke. 
The tea is ready, she said. I don't want any tea, Hubert said. What's the matter, she asked. Why don't you want your tea? She was standing stiffly, and her face was pink. It was clear that she knew she was in the wrong. I don't want any tea, Hubert said. That's simple enough, isn't it? And I can guarantee you this. The next time you shut a door in my face like that, I'm going to walk out of this house, and I won't come back. I mean what I say. Hubert, I don't know what you're talking about, she said. Hubert said nothing. Will you let me bring you up a tray, she asked. Never mind about the tray, Hubert said. I don't want your tray. If you'd only get out of here and leave me alone. Hubert watched until the door was shut, and then he leaned forward and put his elbows on his knees and began to study the red hearthrug. He began to hum softly. She is far from the land where her young hero sleeps, and lovers around her are sighing, but... He sighed and lay back in his chair and was silent. He wished he had followed his original plan and walked home. Then he would not have seen the door close. If only he had not seen it close, but he had seen it, and having seen it, he had to take a stand. It was partly the fault of the house, which was much too small. Any house would have been too small, but this one was much too small. There wasn't a corner in it where you could hide without causing questions. Those silent questions that were not questions at all but reproaches. There was no possible way for Hubert to ignore what went on in the house. He would have liked to be able to shut his eyes. Then he could control his temper. Rose was not ashamed that she had closed the door against him. She was only frightened because she had been caught closing it. He wished he'd had had sense enough to go down to the kitchen and have it out with her the minute he saw the door close. He felt he was walking along a path that was separated from another identical path by a glass wall so high that it went out of sight. The path he was following was full of mistakes that he recognised because they were all his own. But while every mistake was familiar to him, every mistake came as a shock because of the different intervals of time that elapsed between one mistake and the next. Just when he felt fine and imagined everything to be all right, there was another blunder. There seemed to be no escaping the contentiousness and disagreeableness in this house. And all the time he was making mistakes and tripping over himself, he could see through the glass to that other path that was also his own. On that path... There were no mistakes, and he did only the right thing, and did it at the right time, and he knew how to deal with everything, and he walked like a man who was in command of himself and his life. Sometimes it seemed that only a trick of light, nothing at all, stood between Hubert and the place where he would know how to conduct life in accordance with its meaning, which he understood perfectly. Nothing in his life made sense. But once you had said that, you had said it all. Hubert could hardly march out of his house and down onto the main road and stop some stranger and say, I understand nothing. To do a thing like that would be, it would be the action of a madman. If he had been on his own, it wouldn't have been so bad. But a wife makes a man conspicuous. Especially if he doesn't amount to much. 
and at this moment Hubert felt he amounted to nothing at all. Poor Rose. He didn't blame her. But by her presence in his life she showed what he had tried to do and what he had hoped, and by her behaviour she showed what his hopes had come to. He was ashamed of her. Without her, who knows what he might have done. And then again, he might have gone through life invisible. But anything would have been better than being held up to ridicule in his own house. Anything in the world would have been better than being held up to ridicule to himself. He felt uncomfortable in his chair, and angry. It was not that she was demanding or extravagant. She asked for nothing. The reason he grew irritable when the time came to hand her the housekeeping money every week was that she always took it apologetically, and on the few occasions when he had forgotten it, reminded him timidly. Of course, he grew irritable once in a while with her pretenses, and no one knew how many times he restrained himself when she irritated him nearly beyond endurance. He could not stand the way she ate, or to know the amount of food she ate, which was a good deal more than he ever felt inclined to take. The word appetite embarrassed him, and the knowledge he had of her appetite, which was so much greater than his own, made her mysterious to him, but not in a way that aroused his interest or affection. He thought her appetite was something to be ashamed of, and he did not want to think about it. He did not grudge her the food, but he thought she attached too much importance to it. He dreaded to see her eat, because he could not keep his eyes off her, and there had been times when he saw her turn red and swallow quickly when she caught him watching her. He always had his breakfast by himself, and he had his dinner in town in the middle of the day, so there were only tea times and Sunday dinners to be got through. Sometimes, as they sat at tea, Hubert told Rose about incidents that had taken place in the shop during the day. These anecdotes dealt mainly with the customers, and often the point they were working up to was the customers' discomfiture, which Hubert found funny, or the customers' ignorance, which Hubert also found funny. Some of the men who came to the shop were so dense that they did not know they were making fools of themselves, or how they were laughed at after they left the place. They were the men who were too tall or too short or too fat or too thin for the patterns they preferred and for the cut and fit they decided upon. Hubert derided the dense customers, not because they looked ridiculous, but because they did not seem to know how ridiculous they were. Hubert could forgive any man for looking like a fool if he played the fool and showed that he could laugh at himself and take a joke, but he had no mercy on people who believed or pretended to believe that they looked just like anybody else. Outside the shop, Hubert could call attention to people's shortcomings and so test their sense of humour. But at work, he naturally had to restrain himself, and it used to drive him nearly mad to see all those posturing fellows get away without knowing they had been observed by a man who had a sharp and humorous eye and a great gift for cutting people down when they got above themselves. Hubert had heard Rose returning to the kitchen, but he had not heard the kitchen door close, although he knew she must have closed it. Now there was no sign from the kitchen. Well, that's all right, Hubert said. Let her do what she likes. But he couldn't go on sitting in his armchair forever, doing nothing, 
He couldn't concentrate. He couldn't read. He didn't want to read. He didn't want to do anything. He had made up his mind not to give in to her. Sooner or later, somebody was going to have to make a move, but Hubert felt that the decision had been taken out of his hands and that it was now up to Rose to make some gesture. When he first came home and saw her close the door against him, he had had the choice between going down to the kitchen or not going down there. Now that choice was gone. Instead of making the choice, he had asserted himself, and any sign he gave now would mean that he had backed down. She would have to come out of the kitchen sometime. She would want to go out to have a last look at her garden. Bedtime would come. It was only a matter of waiting until the normal routine of the house washed him out of the corner he had been forced into. It would be all the same in a hundred years, but Hubert knew that as long as he lived, he would never understand why Rose had closed the door against him like that. He no longer wondered why she had closed the door. He only wished he had not seen it close. The window behind him was a big oblong, almost a square, a sash window, and it faced the end wall of their garden. At the other side of the wall lay the courts of the tennis club. Hubert and Rose considered the members of the tennis club to be a gay and fashionable set, and Hubert said they were a worthless crowd. On Saturday nights, they could hear dance music from the large new addition to the clubhouse. The members called the new addition the pavilion. The dance music annoyed Hubert, and although Rose had once loved to dance, she never protested when he got up and shut the window so that they could have a little peace and quiet in the house. The entrance to the club was on the main road that ran past the end of the terrace of small houses where the Durdens lived. On one side, the club grounds ended at the long end wall that was common to the 26 gardens owned by the Durdens and their neighbours all up and down the terrace. The farther boundaries of the club were marked by groves of trees. If Hubert had gone to stand by the window, he would have seen the tops of the trees far away beyond the courts and beyond the trees coming towards him the sky. He didn't move. He sat and listened. The window was open at the top, and he could hear the quarrelsome old woman next door scolding her middle-aged daughter, who was unmarried and lived at home, doing the housework and cooking and easing her occasional rebellious rages with loud crying fits that could be heard in the Durden's kitchen and also in the back sitting room. That garden next door was a wilderness of ivy and nettles and neglected cabbage plants. It was a disgraceful household. Hubert hoped the unhappy daughter would not have a crying fit this evening and he wished both women would be removed to some lunatic asylum and that a single man, who was never at home, would move in next door. He listened to the old woman's thin, cruel voice, and he thought he heard her daughter's hysterical silence. He heard, faintly, voices from the tennis courts, and he heard the Donovan's big collie crying pitifully as it strained at the chain that held it to the cramped kennel that had been its home from a puppy. The Donovans kept the dog as a protection against burglars. Hubert wished a burglar might climb over the end wall and free the dog, who could then go into the house and kill Tom Donovan and his wife and their three impertinent children, and perhaps have enough to eat for once in its life. He heard more than he could bear to hear. 
The back sitting room was filling up with lives he despised and with people he detested, and he had no defence against any of it. He could have closed the window, but he was sure that the minute he appeared there with his arms up, pushing the sash tight, Rose would open the kitchen door, coming out into the garden, and he did not want to see her. He didn't want to see her because he did not care about her. It was the first true thing he had said in a long time, and he was glad it was out in the open at last. He simply didn't care about her. He cared nothing at all about her, and he couldn't understand why he hadn't realized it a long time ago. He couldn't stand the thought of seeing her and having to speak to her and having to go on living in the same house with her. He could not think of her now without seeing the fluttering dishonesty of her expression, and he wondered if it would ever seem worth his while again to try to speak directly to her. What was the use of trying to talk to her? She never said yes or no. It was always, whatever you like, or I don't mind, or maybe, if that's what you want. And then the mute resignation that followed his decision, which, of course, was never what she wanted, although wild horses would not have dragged an objection out of her. No, he wouldn't bother trying to talk to her. It wasn't worth his while, and it would only distress her for nothing. All the same... Although Hubert felt that Rose was of no importance, he knew she was better than a good many people, better than the two women next door, and better than the Donovans, and better than that loud, good-for-nothing crowd at the tennis club. And he knew she was defenceless, and he felt that his indifference left her exposed, even though she didn't know about it. And he pitied her, because in her own way she did her best, and nobody cared anything at all about her. She was a lost cause, all right, and it was a good thing that only he knew it. It would be terrible for Rose if the rest of the world knew what he knew about her. It was no accident that she had always lagged behind him. She had no sense. She was not able to take care of herself. She had always been the same. Rose had not always been the same, but there was no one now to tell what she had been or to see her as she had been seen. Once in a while she thought of her father, who died when she was ten. When she remembered him, trying to remember his voice, she looked more than ever like a bird that has found its feet on the ground instead of finding its wings in the air. She looked around her and wondered. She was tame, but the place was strange. Whatever she might have been, Laughing, solemn, hopeful, melancholy, serene, unquiet, ambitious, or whatever she might have become, she was now only tame. She had turned tame when her father died, as she might have turned traitor to a call she had once been ready to give her life for. She had known her father was dead, but not that he was gone, and even when she began to know he was gone, she refused to believe that he was gone out of sight, and she put the strength of a lifetime into her struggle to keep him in sight until she was sure he was safe. She had forgotten all that was familiar to her in her struggle to stand by the one who had made it all familiar. She knew he would expect it of her. He had said that she was faithful, 
he had said that she would never let anyone down. Over and over again he had said she was a good child, and that she had no bad in her. He had always defended her to her mother. Rose's father had thought the world of her, and he had told her and told anyone else who would listen that she was an unusual child who could do anything she set out to do. Once when she was dancing around their kitchen showing off, he said, one of these days Rose is going to show us how the birds fly. There was no end to their conversations and they agreed on everything. After he was dead, when she set about remembering him, she found that she had memorized him, and he was so clear in her mind that, as she listened to her mother and the neighbors talking about him, all she had to do was to look above their heads, and she could see him. Not as he had been, but as he was now, above them all and smiling down on them as he listened to the nice things they were saying about him, although none of them had had much opinion of him when he was alive. She hated them all, but the more she hated them, the more she feared them, because she knew that if they found out about her dreams, they would laugh at her and call her misimportance. Her mother had always said that she had too good an idea of herself and that she was too fanciful. Rose knew that she must be a good child, but she never learned that there is more to being a good child than just doing what you are told. She did not know where she was. She wanted to be told what to do, and when she was not told, she imagined she had done something wrong. She had never been able to meet the world on its own terms. She did not measure up, and she had no terms of her own, and had not tried to make any. She had not known she had the power to make terms. She found the world difficult, because while she knew that life is precious, and must be watched night and day or it will vanish without warning. She also knew that in the long run, life is of no value at all, because it vanishes without warning. Between these two sharp edges, she made her way as well as she could. When Hubert first saw Rose, he thought how light and definite her walk was, and that her expression was resolute. He never learned that the courage she showed came not from natural hope or from natural confidence or from any ignorant natural source, but from her determination to avoid touching the two madnesses as they guided her, pressing too close to her and narrowing her path into a very thin line. She always walked in straight lines. She went from where she was to the place where she was going and then back again to the place where she had been. She kept close to the house. She might as well have been in a net, for all the freedom she felt. In the early days of their marriage, Hubert and Rose lived in two rooms at the top of a house on Somerville Street off Stevens Green. The first evening they walked in there together was the evening of their wedding day. It was also the occasion of Rose's first journey in a train from the town of Wexford, where she was born and brought up, to Dublin. A friend of Hubert's named Frank Guinea met them at the station to welcome them and to help carry their parcels and suitcases. Rose was carrying a basket of groceries her mother had packed for her at the last minute. It was all she carried, but Hubert and Frank were burdened down. 
When they reached the top of the tall building, they were all breathless from the long flights of stairs. Hubert dropped everything he was carrying on the landing and put his hand against the wall to support himself until he could catch his breath. What made you stop, Frank said to him. We'd have been in heaven in another five minutes. Rose thought Frank was very funny. Frank had found the rooms for them and he had given Hubert the key at the station. Rose had watched Hubert put the key carefully in his waistcoat pocket and now she watched him take it out again. He was very self-conscious and in his eagerness to open their door, he stumbled over one of the suitcases he had put down and he nearly fell through the doorway ahead of Rose. But Frank grabbed him and held him back and Rose went in first. Ladies first, Frank shouted, loud enough to rouse the whole neighbourhood. They were all there laughing. Rose put her basket on the shaky round table that stood in the middle of the room, and she stood there looking around her while Hubert and Frank brought in the luggage. The scrap of thin carpeting under her feet was faded, and it was so worn that most of it was the same straw colour as her basket, with traces of red and pink to show how bright it once had been. When everything had been brought in, Frank made a great display of trying to pick Hubert up and carry him around. This is a remarkable parcel, madame, he said to Rose, while Hubert struggled. It has delusions of grandeur. It thinks it's alive. Rose had never laughed so hard in her life. She saw Hubert watching her and admiring her, and she knew they were both showing off for her benefit. Then Frank suddenly got serious and took his watch out of his pocket and looked at it and said he had an important appointment, a matter of life and death, and that he was two days and ten minutes late already. He was outside and closing the door after himself while he was still talking, and he wouldn't listen to Hubert's invitation to stay a minute. Then he vanished, and they heard him running down the stairs. Rose looked at Hubert. Frank's a great man, Hubert said, but I'm glad he's gone, aren't you? Aren't you glad, Rose? Yes, Rose said and then she turned and went quickly to the window, a small square window that looked across Somerville Street to the tops of the houses beyond. It's a lovely sky, she said. Take off that old hat, Hubert said. You're at home now. She had lifted the flimsy green net curtains that covered the windows while she was looking out, and as she raised her arms to take the pins out of her hat, the curtains fell back to the wall, and she saw that they were of unequal lengths. Look, one of these is too long, she said. I'll have to even them up. She took her hands from her hat and lifted the curtains and stepped back, measuring them together at their hems. About an inch, she said. That should be right. She let the curtains go, and when they dropped back into place, she sighed with satisfaction, as though they had passed a test and carried the whole house to victory with them. And now she knew that the curtains and the walls and the long stairs up would stand fast and keep their appointed positions, all true weights to anchor her so that she would never get lost because she was held safe where she belonged. She turned to Hubert and smiled at him. Then she remembered her hat and put up her hands and began searching for the pins again. I'll do that curtain tomorrow, she said. Green curtains for your green eyes, Hubert said, but he knew there was no comparison, because the curtains were a garish green, and Rose's eyes were the colour of the sea. When Rose was asleep, her face looked solitary, 
and when she was awake, she looked lonely. There was implacability and pride in her solitude, but her loneliness was helpless. Hubert could not reach her solitude, and he could not destroy her loneliness. He thought of the sea and did not know why. When she woke up suddenly, turning over in bed, that implacable solitude shone triumphantly in her eyes for an instant before loneliness shadowed them. Hubert marvelled at her. He couldn't understand why she had married him, and at the same time, he couldn't understand how she had lived until she married him. How did you ever get along before you met me? he asked her. I don't know, she said. I can't remember. She was always smiling at him. She only stopped smiling in order to smile again. One evening after tea, he asked her if she had mended his socks. They were still sitting at the table, the shaky round table in the room with the green net curtains. They were two months married to the day, and Rose had bought a slice of dark fruitcake to celebrate the anniversary. She had cut the cake into fingers, and they had eaten it all except for one small piece, which lay on the plate between them. Hubert knew she wanted the cake, but that she also wanted him to have it. He intended to give it to her, but he wanted to tease her. When he asked about the socks, he was grinning. He still thought it absurd that Rose should do his mending. Rose had her elbows on the table, and she was looking at her hands and admiring the one that wore the wedding ring. When she heard his question, she looked at him in astonishment, as though he had deliberately said something he knew would hurt her. I forgot them, she said. I forgot to do your socks. Isn't that just like me to forget the one thing you asked me to do? It's not all that important, Hubert said. He was still smiling, but he was hurt. She looked at him as though he was turning out to be just like her mother, catching her out in a mistake and then bullying her. It doesn't matter, he said impatiently. Here, look, have this nice piece of cake. I don't want it now, she said, and now told him he had spoiled everything. Oh, all right, so, he said, and he took the piece of cake and crammed it into his mouth and got up from the table and went over to stand by the window. He pushed the green net curtains aside and looked out. He saw the chimneys of the houses on the other side of the street and the grey street sky above. It had been raining on an awful day. As Hubert watched, another shower began and the raindrops dashed violently against the window. He felt a chill go through him, although the windows were closed. Rose still sat at the table where he had left her. He felt ashamed of himself. If he had left her alone, she would have eaten the cake, and then she would have been happier. He longed to comfort her, but the cake was gone, and he could think of no other peace offering. He wished he knew what to say to her. He hoped she would soon get up and start clearing the table, because until she gave some sign he could not turn from the window, and he was tired of standing there looking out at the rain and blaming himself. Then he turned without intending to, and she was sitting with her head down and her hands in her lap. She looked at him piteously and said, I'm sorry, Hubert, he said gently. There's nothing in the world for you to be sorry about. She gave no sign that she heard him, but she continued to look at him. He felt that she was waiting for him to tell her what to do, 
and that she would do whatever he said. Her helplessness confounded him. He felt he could deal with her. After all, she was Rose. He knew her. She was his wife. But he could not deal with her helplessness. If he had to put it into words, he might have said, I married Rose, not her helplessness. As another man might have said, I married her, not her family. Hubert had seen Rose get that beaten look in her mother's presence, but there was no need for any of that now, and he knew it would be a bad thing to encourage her in these moods. It would be bad for her. Her mother had warned him that Rose was inclined to brood over nothing. The thing to do was not to take her seriously, and not to admit that there was anything wrong. There was nothing wrong. Hubert knew that the way to deal with Rose, when she was in this frame of mind, was not to comfort or coddle her, but to distract her. And so instead of putting his arms around her as he wanted to do, he said, The shower will be over in a minute. Why don't we forget about all this and go out for a little walk and talk about the nice house we're going to have all to ourselves one of these days? The house they found was the one they lived in now. The linoleum on the floor in the back sitting room where Hubert sat had been there when they moved in, and they had paid extra for it. Before they moved into the house, they came out on the tram from Somerville Street one day and walked around the empty rooms they would soon be living in. One tour of the house was enough for Hubert, but Rose was reluctant to leave, so he sat down on the floor in the back sitting room with his back to the wall under the window and told her to look around to her heart's content. He was not easy in his mind, but the deed was done now they had the house. He listened to Rose walking about upstairs. There was linoleum in the back bedroom, but none in the front. She walked across the bare boards of the front bedroom, and then she stopped. She was at the windows upstairs, looking out and wondering about the neighbours. Now she was coming back and down the stairs. Her step was dulled by the narrow red carpeting on the stairs, and she was coming slowly and being careful to keep to the centre of each step. She continued on down to the kitchen. The floor in the kitchen was covered with red tiles. After a minute she left the kitchen and came into the back sitting room, which they then called the dining room. I love looking around like this, she said. I'll never get tired of this house. I wonder how they came to pick out those colours. She was looking down at the linoleum, which was beige and brown and maroon, in a pattern of large and small feathers. It's in very good condition, Hubert said gloomily. I'm afraid we'll have to get used to it. Oh, it's not that I don't like it, Rose said. She looked curiously at the linoleum other people had admired and taken care of. If it hadn't already been in the house, she would never have owned it. It was like a gift brought from some foreign place. She would never have chosen that pattern, all those colours. They were a part of something strange, from someone else's life, souvenirs of a country she did not know at all and where she did not want to be, because she would find herself timid and ill at ease there, and nothing there would ever be as real to her as the linoleum they had left behind was now under her feet. She walked possessively around on it. I never want to leave this house, she said. Hubert got out of his chair and walked to the door. His mind was made up. He would go upstairs and wash his hands as usual and change from his suit coat into his woolen cardigan as usual and then he would come down and let events take their course. His mind was made up. But even so, he hesitated before opening the door. 
but once the door was open, he was up the stairs like a shot and into the bathroom, where he scrubbed his hands vigorously and splashed cold water on his face. He felt better already, knowing he was going to do the right thing. It was all a lot of nonsense, much better to get everything out into the open. Now he would go straight down to the kitchen and have it out with Rose. He would laugh her out of her gloominess. It was only a matter of finding the right thing to say. He would get her to laugh at herself and see what nonsense all this bickering was. He hurried down the stairs and down the three steps that led from the hall to the kitchen as though he were bringing news that could not wait. Good news, the best news. But at the kitchen door he hesitated, and then, hearing no movement inside, although she must have heard him thundering down the stairs, he beat a loud postman's tattoo on the door and burst into the room to find it empty. The door into the garden was open. She had gone out there, and he could not follow her. All the neighbours would look out through their back windows, and anyone who happened to be out in the neighbouring gardens could hear every word he said. He looked over at the stove to see if by any chance she had left the teapot there. But the top of the stove was as clear as the top of the table and the drainboard by the sink. The kitchen was spotless. She had finished working there. There was to be nothing to eat then. He went back up to the sitting room and went in. There, on the dining room table, which they kept folded against the wall opposite the fireplace, she had left a tray. He went over and looked at it. Brown bread and a slice of ham. She had taken the trouble to shape the butter into curly balls. A tomato. Three chocolate biscuits. The teapot was at the fireplace sitting inside the fender with a cosy over it. He hurried over to the teapot and pulled the cosy off it and carried it to the table and shakily poured tea into his cup and returned the pot to the hearth. It was too hot to set down on the table. He poured milk into his tea and drank it down quickly. He wanted another cup at once, but this time he carried the cup over to the hearth and filled it there. Then he sat down at the table and began to eat his way through everything on the tray. When everything was gone, he felt better, although he thought he could have done without the third chocolate biscuit. He had been hungry, that was all, famished. He wouldn't mind having his tea from a tray like this every evening. He sat gazing at the ravaged tray and thinking about how she had smuggled it into the room while he was upstairs. It was clever of her. She had wanted him to have his tea, but she had not wanted to face him. She had taken a lot of trouble over the tray. He got up and went to the window. She was there kneeling sideways to him by the flower bed that ran along the wall where the laburnum tree was. The laburnum had been there when they moved in, together with a yellow rose that was on the opposite side of the garden. Apart from the laburnum and the rose, there had been nothing. The place was a wilderness when they first saw it, but Rose had seen immediately that it had the makings of a good garden. Her work in the garden was wonderful, Hubert did not know where she had got her knowledge of flowers. She was kneeling out there now, settling something, some little plant, into its bed. She was intent on placing the plant in its exact place, and she was as anxious at her work as though she had taken the future of the world between her hands and must set it right once and for all, because there would be no second chance no second chance for her at least, to prove that if it was left to her, all would be well. For this moment, 
the weight of the world was off her shoulders and in her hands. She finished and sat back on her heels and rubbed her open hands together to get rid of the earth. Then she put her hand on the handle of the watering can and began to get awkwardly to her feet. Hubert looked away from her and down at his own hands. There was no need for him to watch her, to know how she got up. He had seen her often enough, raising herself after doing out the fireplace, by placing her hand on the edge of the coal scuttle. When he looked out again, she was standing with her back to him, looking about her as though she was calculating the effect of some improvement she had in mind. She raised one hand to her hair to smooth a loose strand up off the back of her neck into the thick bun she wore. She was wearing a white blouse with loose sleeves, and as the sleeve fell back, her upraised arm gleamed. Hubert saw her wrist and her elbow, and in that fragment of her, he saw all of Rose, as the crescent moon recalls the full moon to anyone who has watched her at the height of her power. Then Rose stooped and lifted the heavy watering can with both hands and began to move slowly away towards the end wall, watering the plants as she went. The day was almost worn out. The light was thin, fading light that left everything visible. That evening's light was helpless, the day in extremity, without strength enough left to dissemble with sun and shade, with only strength enough left to touch the world as it withdrew forever from the world. The evening light spoke, and what it said was, There is nothing more to be said. There is nothing more to be said because what remains to be said must not be said. It is too late for Rose. Hubert was silent. He had nothing to say, and in any case, there was no one to hear him. That was Claire Louise Bennett reading Family Walls by Maeve Brennan. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 1973 and was included in her story collection, The Springs of Affection, Stories of Dublin, which was published posthumously by Houghton Mifflin in 1997 and was reissued by Peninsula Press earlier this year. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Claire Louise, let's start with this opening sequence. Hubert gets off work. 
He thinks about walking home. He takes the tram almost by accident, enters his house feeling full of energy, and catches his wife in the process of closing the kitchen door. And, and that's the act that sends the two of them into a tailspin. I feel as though um, Brennan leaves some ambiguity as to why exactly Rose does that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I mm-hmm. think that's one of the um, exciting things, in a way, about the story. We never really know what went on. We're as perplexed in some ways as, as Hubert is. And I mentioned the Gothic aspect previously, and I suppose another element of the Gothic is that sense of alteriety, you know. So he notices something without really knowing what he's noticed. And that's what really drives him up the mm-hmm. wall, I think. It's very strange. It's only a, a very, very small thing that's occurred here. Uh, it's microscopic, really. And no, we don't, we don't really know. Yeah, I mean, she could have been doing anything in there, but most likely she was making Hubert's tea and just suddenly wanted a moment more by herself or of silence or of non-duty. Yeah, very, very probably. Um, One of the passages that really struck me and made it, I suppose, endure in my mind was when um, Hubert says that she, she wasn't able to meet the world on its own terms and she wasn't able either to make any terms of her own. She didn't realize she had the power to make her own terms. That really hit me because, well, actually it reminded me a bit of my grandmother and of that generation of women who um, I think sometimes they're seen as martyrs or something. And I know they can be really irritating. I know my grandmother used to really <laughs> irritate my family. But then when I read that line, you know, I, I understood it. I was like, yeah, they didn't know that they could ask for anything out of life. Because on the other mm-hmm. hand, as we discover, Rose was often told that she had, you know, daft ideas about herself. And that's something that often happens, you know. You, you get told you've got fanciful notions and you're made to feel silly then for right. having ideas, you know, on the one hand. And then you're made to feel like you're utterly hopeless if you don't. Yeah. It makes me think of this, these, these two sort of parallel images in the story. We have Hubert who sees himself walking along his path, making mistakes, while on the other side of a glass wall is the ideal Hubert who walks along a perfect path and makes no mistakes. And then with Rose, we have her walking a very narrow path between the idea that life is precious and the idea that life has no value at all. And they're both somehow on a path they can't explain and they can't control while imagining that there's a better one, you know, Mm. that they can't reach. Mm. It's sort of interesting. Mm. Yeah. um, The story begins, you know, with that um, desire that Hubert suddenly has that he might, you know, physically walk home. The idea of a walk in this sense is, is not metaphorical so much, but it sort of becomes it in a way because, of course, he doesn't make that walk, you know, and he's thinking about it all the time that he's actually heading towards <laughs> the tram somewhat, you know, yeah. automatically. And there is that sense, you know, that all the time he's talking about 
Rose being helpless, you think, well, you don't seem to have much autonomy in in your life either. Yeah, yeah. He's also mechanically following the the path he thinks he should. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know whether a lot of that anger then and, and frustration that, that we hear about isn't really in some way just anger towards himself. Right. And and as you said then, that image comes of, of this invisible glass, you know. But there is nothing to stop him from walking home, you know. There is no barrier there particularly. Except the need the need to make a decision, which is should he put his raincoat on or not? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, once again, it seems to be completely flummoxed by uh, a small detail. You know, there's that line, that I think it's pretty much at the end where, you know, Rose is in the garden and God, even then, even then with that beautiful scene with Rose in her garden, you know, she's kind of in her world mm-hmm. really at last and we get a sense of her. I guess some of the power that, that she has there and some of the ability she has to really, you know, put things in the right place and to nurture and and so on. And Hubert's looking at, at this and looking at her and there's this beautiful tender description that, that mirrors an earlier description of when she's a younger woman taking hat pins out of her right, hair. Right. And here we have her reaching up just to tuck a strand of hair back into her bun. And there's an opportunity there, you know, for Brennan to give us something a bit more, I don't know, heartening or consoling or hopeful about what might happen in the rest of the evening or the rest (laughs) of their lives. But she just doesn't do it, you know. She doesn't go there. She's just like, well, it's too late, you know. There's nothing to be said. And no one to hear it. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, wow. (laughs) 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 But I really, I admire her very much, actually, for not giving us that respite at the end, you know. Most other writers would have given maybe a glimmer of something, but she just, she just doesn't. Well, it's interesting, early in the story, Hubert's thinking about Rose, and and he says, by her presence in his life, she showed what he had tried to do and that he had hoped, and by her behavior, she showed what his hopes had come to. And... It's a kind of wonderful piece of deflection because what he's saying is he's failed, Mm. but it wouldn't show without Rose around, you know, he could sort of, (laughs) um, you know, be hidden in the woodwork if she weren't there um, making him visible somehow. I mean, I'm not quite sure how that how that works. Is it because she can't quite succeed at social norms either? Or is it just simply the fact of having a wife makes him more of a public figure? I mean, that's the other aspect, isn't it, I suppose? Living with somebody, and it's another thing that sort of Gothic literature explores a bit, is that idea of being observed, and you're never sort of just anonymous in your own in your own home. You feel always... Um, it's not like you're under scrutiny, but... Like, I, I live on my own, and... Like, say you're sick. I think some of you are sick or if I'm going through like a, maybe a period of where I'm feeling depressed or whatever, I don't really want anyone to be around because it compounds it. It just makes me feel even more weird. That's the thing. 
Mm-hmm. So anything a bit strange going on with you, there's someone else around. It just makes you more conscious of it. Because actually, yeah, if you do look at yourself through somebody else's eyes, it's always a bit discomforting, really, you know? <laughs> Which makes it funny that the whole story revolves around Rose choosing not to see him, you know, not to look at him. Yeah, that's true. And And it's also funny because, you know, he feels rejected, obviously, and, and who wouldn't? But um, he's the one who, you know, does his best to have his breakfast alone, to eat lunch in town, who says there's only tea times and Sunday dinners to get through with her. So why would he be so enraged by a tiny moment of avoidance on her part? I think it's because he just doesn't know what it means. Mm. And it is that notion, I think, of it draws attention to her. But at the same time, it heightens the mystery of her. Perhaps it draws attention to the separation between them, you know, the fact that she's not just sort of an appendage of his, but has her own individuality. Yeah, yeah, and I think that maybe just sort of freaks him out a little bit. I mean, in one one of the other stories we're told that he really doesn't like the order of the day to be interfered with too much. So he really is a creature of habit. It really just kind of throws him, the whole kind of glitch. And then he he can't sit down. He wants somebody there to tell him what to do, mm-hmm. even though the basis of a lot of his criticism of Rose is that she can't do anything herself. She needs to be told. But he's quite helpless in that in that sitting room. He's kind of sort of stuck in there, isn't he? He doesn't want to shut the window just in case she comes in at the moment when his arms are up in the air, <laughs> which I really like because I kind of get it. Like, you don't want to be doing something uncool or something when someone comes in. You want to be just kind of like, oh. Mm. Especially if you're about to, you know, yell at her. Um, you need your, your position of authority. He is so conflicted, so conflicted in that scene because he wants to be told to do something. He wants to be able to do something else. He he doesn't feel able to do anything. And, you know, what he's angry about is that she's kind of closed a door in his face and not engaged with him. And then the second she comes in to engage with him, he orders her out. <laughs> he doesn't even want engagement. So... I guess what's what's going on in his mind? God knows. Why is he I mean, so he uses flummoxed? that he uses that term, "stand my ground," and that's that's interesting because he, the ground seems to have totally gone from beneath him, you know, and it's like he just cannot inhabit that room at all. It's like the whole room has now become sort of unfamiliar or something, because then he talks about the house and. Well, it's too small anyway, you know, like it's some, a lot of houses are small, but this one's much too small. And it feels like the house controls them to, to some degree. And because he just says, actually, in the end, you know, I just have to wait until the normal routine of the house kind of flushes me out of my corner. Right. You know. Right. <laughs> Bedtime will come. I think it's too easy to sort of demonize Hubert as the the negative of the story, you know, because... He's so enraged in the beginning and he wishes he hasn't married her and he doesn't care about her and he pities her because everyone is indifferent to her. But then there's also a change in the course of the story and it 
by the end, he just wants to laugh her out of her gloominess. And and he he just has this underlying tenderness for her. And maybe it's because we see these flashbacks of their early, you know, their wedding day and early relationship where he really was in love with her, you know, was drawn to her mm. for some of the same reasons that he's now repelled by her. But I'm I'm surprised in this and the other stories about them that he still has this, to use your word, kind of uncanny tenderness for her, that even when he's enraged by her and ashamed of her, he still sort of loves her, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what makes the story so interesting is that it isn't like um, a very sort of polarized situation of like, oh, you know, he's an asshole and poor Rose kind of thing. I don't feel that at all. And in, in some of the other stories, I've felt quite sort of sympathetic towards him, really. I think the element as well, actually, is it is very difficult. And there's a scene, um, that earlier scene, when they've just moved into the place um, off of Stephen's Green when they're younger. And um, he just asks her about the socks, you know. And she gets all contrite and apologetic and it's a bit over the top there's sort of no need yeah. you know and then it makes him feel like he's being you know like a bully or something and that's awful you know I think when someone kind of plays the wounded one and it's obviously something that she's continuing from her relationship with with her mother but that can really put you off a person you know because it's not really that nice you know because you're thinking yeah. well I'm not I'm not an asshole so just stop reacting like I'm being abusive, you know, I'm just asking you a, a question. So I think that's something in their relationship that they've obviously not been able to address or overcome. Um, certainly there are moments when I think, oh, like, let up a bit, you know. But that's, you know, that's normal. And then there are other times when I can understand some of his frustration. And that's what adds to the sadness of it, you know, because if it was just a straightforward scenario of, a man just, you know, being kind of nasty and unkind, then that's what you'd conclude, you know, and that would be yeah. the end of the story, really, and it wouldn't really be a particularly good story. You mentioned Rose's mother. I think it's interesting in the story, and I think in the other ones as well, that we get a fair amount of Rose's family background, her childhood, and absolutely nothing about Hubert's. She has this this completely black-and-white upbringing where the mother despises her and the father adores her and both of them are over the top and so she has no way to think about herself. I don't know whether that's because, you know, I don't know whether Brennan provides all this background to Rose because she feels that her behavior needs sort of explaining or contextualizing in some way, whereas Hubert's doesn't. <laughs> well, this is how a man behaves or something. I don't know. There's that line, isn't it? Rose could have been, you know, any number of things. Not all of them necessarily good. She could have been melancholy, unquiet. She could have been whatever. But what she ended up being is just totally helpless, actually. But then at the end, we get this image of Rose in in her own environment, in the place where she does make the right decisions, as you said, in the garden. And in a way, that's the place where she she actually has the power. So it's interesting to me that Brennan ends with her in the garden, you know, putting things in exactly the right place. Mm. 
and follows that with such a, as you said, such a incredibly um, tragic and morbid summation. You know, it's too late for Rose. When she's right, actually doing something that gives her pleasure and doing it well. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've maybe circumvented some of that crushingness of that of that ending by interpreting it as a deflection and really he's talking about himself. So mm-hmm. I, I don't read it as it's too late for Rose. I read it as it's too late for him. Yeah. And and the image of of Rose in Jaws for me, I still I still have this quite lovely image of, of her. And because of the comparison that that um, Brennan makes to to the moon, the crescent moon and the full moon, you know, I can't I can't help but sort of conflate that somehow and, and see her as kind of very moonlit and not otherworldly, but you know, happily solitary or something and quite pearlescent or something or other. So I'm I am left with actually quite a lovely image of her. Um. As we as we've said, Brennan kind of explored this relationship in in several other stories. Um, the first one I think was um, "A Young Girl Can Spoil Her Chances," which was published in the New Yorker eleven years before in nineteen sixty two. Why do you think she kept coming back to the Durdens? Well, I think she had a, a somewhat obsessive imagination. And we can't necessarily know the personal reasons behind her obsession with with this situation and the domestic and marriage and so on. But it doesn't surprise me, really. There was something, obviously, she was maybe trying to unpack or understand or get to. And reading them then is kind of strange and almost uncanny because you get a lot of the same details repeated Mm -hmm. as if you haven't read any of the other stories so you get the description of the house again or but it makes a really interesting reading experience don't you think yeah yeah i find it interesting that the chronology of of the story she's telling didn't match the chronology of the order of the stories so that the story about Rose's death was published 10 years before Family Walls. So really she was killed off 10 years before Brennan wrote this story. And we already saw in that story Hubert's reaction to her death. And then within each story, there's so much spiraling through time. You know, mm. we're, we're all over the place in this one. We're mm. sort of nominally based in their, when they're in their 40s and living in that house. But there's also their wedding night. There's also her childhood Um and and other moments from the past. So what do you make of that kind of movement through time? Yeah, it is. it gets a little disorienting. In that story, um, there's a, a new paragraph and Hubert is downstairs listening to Rose upstairs. And to begin with, I couldn't, I couldn't tell whether it was now or, or then. Mm-hmm. And it actually, it wasn't easy to, to, to clarify that straight away. And, yeah, that, that sense of, of time and, and timelessness and repetition, I guess, in a way, it maybe mirrors how memory works. I don't know. It's interesting how a character or a set of characters 
exists in the imagination. But uh, it, yeah, it makes it makes sense to me that they persisted. I, I, I guess that they persisted in mm-hmm. her mind. How do you interpret the title of this one? What are I the family know. walls? Family walls is a funny one, isn't it? Yeah, because we don't actually even get the family in this. We don't. They they have a son, but he doesn't appear here. No, it is a it is a strange one. It's I don't know. It's almost like a title of a Natalia Ginsburg story or something. <laughs> you know, it has more of a sense of I don't know busyness or I don't know. I just find it fascinating to think about Brennan's relationship to family and walls and mm-hmm. marriage and homes and. And I mean, there's so much care taken over the descriptions of the house, you know. It's so particular, it's meticulous. But at the same time, a bit like that, you know, with Rose's attitude to life, yeah, it's precious. And at the same time, it means nothing at all, you know. Nothing, yeah. There's so much, isn't there? There's so much pressure, particularly women, I suppose, feel, or they certainly felt to have everything just so and everything in its place. But at the same time, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to hell with it kind of thing. I think she's fascinating. I think she's fascinating how she um, explores all of that. Well, thank you so much, Claire Louise. Thank you, Deborah. I, I enjoyed talking to you about it very much. Maeve Brennan was born in Ireland in 1917 and moved to Washington, D.C. in 1934. She later settled in New York, where she joined the staff of The New Yorker in 1949, writing nonfiction pieces under the pseudonym The Long-Winded Lady. During her lifetime, she published two story collections, In and Out of Never Never Land and Christmas Eve. Two more, including The Springs of Affection, were published after her death in 1993, along with the novella The Visitor. Claire Louise Bennett is the author of two books of fiction, Pond, which was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize in 2016, and Checkout 19, which was published last year and was shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize. You can download more than 180 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>